2: creative, to have the space to learn how to be creative only really happens for most of us in architecture school or design school. So I think that it teaches us to be problem solvers, creative problem solvers. And I think that type of mindset of being able to take a complex situation, identify underlying problems, develop criteria for meeting those problems and leverage creative solutions that are not just functional, but beautiful to meet it. I think that's what architecture school does. and that is kind of independent of being able to design a building or construct a building or any of those things. So you can take that mindset and that way of thinking and do just about anything with it.
1: Welcome back to Context and Clarity. This is the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects, just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host Katie Kangas and I, and our live audiences that join us from all across the internet, we all have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. It's been a really good fall season for Context and Clarity, and this is the episode to wrap it all up conversations have covered everything from mentorship to humor, to grade school, to mindsets, to fan clubs and client experience. And now I know you're going to love this one about licensure and the future of the profession with Gabriel Keller. Even though Gabriel's title of owner and principal designer at Peterson Keller Architecture or PKA, it may sound relatively industry standard, but his story is at the same time unique And more common than most of us think. You need to listen to this conversation with Gabriel Keller and imagine a more inclusive, accessible profession. Maybe even a restructuring of the profession itself. All right. Welcome back to Context and Clarity Live. Katie, glad that you're here today.
3: It's good to be here.
1: You're somewhere different today. Where are you?
3: I am. We have the EIE conference here in Minnesota. And so I am borrowing space from ESG. So St. So on you know, Anthony Falls of the Mississippi River is just down the street and I can see the Guthrie. It's it's a pretty good view up here.
1: Nice. Nice. We were talking before we went live about it's a little bit fancy, right? You got you got some new digs, which is awesome. And it is great to get a change of perspective, whether it's from for a conference or travel or whatever it is. So glad you're able to do this mobile edition of Context and Clarity Live with us this week.
3: Today we have Gabriel Keller joining us. He founded Peterson Keller Architects here in Minneapolis, Minnesota and has done incredible work in his firm, award-winning residential projects all over the cities and beyond and he's got a long history coming into this and in how he designs and how he practices. And we're really excited to be talking with him about that today.
1: So let's just bring him in. Gabriel Keller, welcome. Context and Clarity Live. Glad you're here today. Thanks for
2: having me. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I've got to give even more credit to Katie because actually several of our guests for this season of Context and Clarity Live, she said, hey, what about or what about this person? What about this person? And Gabriel, you were one. That was on her list. And so she's filled me in. You know, why Gabriel Keller? Your story is, I think, at the same time, unique, but also not uncommon. And, you know, what we'll jump into, I think, with licensure, but we all have unique stories, right? We've all been on these unique journeys. Your starts, like many, hey, I'm going to go to architecture school, but it may not go down that same path as many of ours. So do you want to? start by just giving a little bit of your background and and how you got to where you are today?
2: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. This is a story that used to be really difficult for me to tell. And I think as I've grown into myself and grown into my age, you know, I'm more comfortable talking about it. You know, like I think many of us, I was, you know, 10, 11 years old when I decided I wanted to be an architect. And that was a dream early on. You know, it was one came to talk to my class in fifth grade fourth grade. And and I knew right then, like, this guy gets paid to be creative. Like, what could be better than that? So that took me down the road. And I, I had a pretty difficult childhood. I grew up, I was a only child of a single mom that really struggled with drug addiction and mental health issues, really severe mental health issues. And so college initially was an escape for me, right? To get out, to get into a school like Cornell was both hard work and a lot of luck. And once I got there, I. Started having uh, some significant health issues, and so I was always someone where you know I knew where I'd be in five years and ten years, and you know got all A's and all of that. And suddenly, I started seeing these formidable challenges in my house that I wasn't able to overcome and didn't have the resources kind of behind me to really do that. And at the same time, my mom got much sicker, and so I'm condensing a very long story into a short story here. But I had two heart procedures over two years, and. Accumulated a bunch of medical debt and needed to start supporting my mom. And so I left school my fourth year out of five at Cornell and moved to New York City to make money and try to support my mom and try to get my health back. And the plan was always, you know, I'd always go back, of course. I mean, you could ask me if I wouldn't have graduated from college. I would have thought you were crazy. But one thing leads to another and suddenly you're in a city in a position that back here in Minneapolis where there's no five-year programs. And the amount of money I was making uh, wouldn't allow me to qualify financial aid and I'd have to go back and redo a regular undergrad plus go to grad school and that was plus I was still supporting my mom and that's not taken into account with financial aid at all and it just wasn't an option and the years go by then and in Minnesota at least you can practice residential work and not be licensed you can't call yourself an architect so the opportunities were there despite that and so that's kind of where things led to where we are today and now there's a lot of changes in minnesota but also nationwide that they allow the opportunity for me to become licensed here in this state and i think that's a, a kind of a national conversation that's happening now
1: yeah you know when I, I mentioned your story is unique but also not that uncommon i think we get stuck in this mindset and i teach pro practice and so In my mind, I'm not completely immersed in the academia. I'm not completely immersed in in the university. I just teach these two classes, one's undergrad, one's grad. But I think many of us that had a quote unquote normal or standard or whatever journey through school, whether it was a five-year BR, however many year MR, go, okay, this is how everybody does it, but it's not. It's not how everybody does it. I even look at my grad students, and over half of my grad students this semester are international students. That's a whole other conversation, whole other category. But this normal route or typical route or whatever we call it is really, I mean, maybe it qualifies for the term, but it's not the way that everybody does it. So that's one of the things that I appreciate about you telling your story and about learning how you got here.
2: Well, no, I mean, I think that a lot of times is that I have said that I am both a perfect example of kind of some of these difficulties, but also the worst example because. Despite a lot of these challenges I had economically and socially and health-wise and all that, you know, I had a lot of other advantages that allowed me to be successful. And some of that that was the luck and fortune of, you know, going to an Ivy League school that despite me not graduating, I, you know, always was offered a job anyway, just because of that pedigree. I think being a tall, white male has given me huge advantages as well. So here I have you know, a large, successful residential firm. I don't think, despite not graduating, I don't think that if I was a different person or looked like a different person, that I would have maybe overcome all those obstacles. And in that way, I think I'm kind of the worst example. And, and a lot of the people that I mentor or see out in the community where I'm trying to, as a firm, we really try to get more diversity within our profession and in residential architecture, that's a particular challenge. But nonetheless, it's, you know, most of the people are, coming to these roadblocks and they're not able to get past them because they don't have some of those advantages that I did.
1: And I think those are all the perfect points, right, for this conversation. You've been able, as you said, you've been able to build this firm, obviously not by yourself, but you know, you're able to co-found this firm and build this firm to what it is today. What does that look like as someone who is not licensed? I mean, I think you could do the same thing in the state of Indiana where I am, but you could not in the state of New York, I don't believe, or some of the other states. So it's, you know, fifty states, fifty books of rules. But what's it been like to build what you built so far?
2: I mean, in some ways it's been, I mean, I so I started the firm with my partner and friend Lars Peterson, and that was somebody he was licensed. So we had that advantage. So in Minnesota, if you have one licensed owner, you can call yourself an architecture firm. And so that certainly helped, although there's great residential firms in town that don't have somebody licensed and don't call themselves an architecture firm and a great success. And that allowed us to do commercial projects at the same time if we wanted to, although our focus is residential. I think that professionally, I don't know that it's made much of a difference because there's such confusion in the community about who's licensed and who's not and who can call themselves an architect and who can't. And so there's ambiguity there, which we have to negotiate, but ultimately still, you know, people, it's relationship-based residential more than anything. They meet you, they feel good about you, they've seen your body of work, they want to work with you, and a particular credential is not what they're focused on, you know, 99% of our clients. I think that the challenge more has been, for me personally, was, and this is changing within the AIA, but there was a lot of pushback within the community at first, especially, Because prior to me, it was possible for people to be licensed without a degree. And David Sommel, one of the, you know, probably the great residential architect from Minnesota, kind of went down that path and was a licensed architect. But then I was one of the first generations of people coming through where that was not an option at all. And so I think that was a little bit outside the norm. And I received a lot of flack and pushback just being part of the community, requesting to be part of the community within the AIA. And that was really hard. And things that were said to me 15, 20 years ago still sting, and really colored my self worth and colored my view of do I have a place within this profession? Because really, initially, the answer was no. You don't belong to the profession at all. And that was hard.
1: That resonates with me. I had somebody walk up to me in an AIA meeting at one point and tell me that the fact that I wasn't licensed, because I wasn't licensed, I was doing a disservice to the profession, as if somehow the next day, if I were licensed and doing exactly the same thing, it would somehow magically change. and I had to basically agree to disagree and walk away from that. But I hear exactly where you're coming from there.
2: I mean one, I'll just like to bring up because I think it's it's one I think about often. you know there was I was an AA residential meeting, and one of the senior members there. You know told me that I was just playing at being an architect, and I think that was really devastating, and I was fairly young at the time in my career. and you know this is a profession that is mostly made up actually of people that are not licensed right And I think that's been something that myself personally and we as a firm have really pushed is to try to you know have the public recognize, but also the profession recognized through awards and through participation and recognition is you know it's not just the one firm owner that does this work and certainly our firm reflects that when we force credits and awards it's the first name on that project is not mine or or another principal because although we participate in it it's being led by somebody else in our office we're assisting with that and we want to put the full team on there and recognize that this is a team effort and people are licensed and unlicensed within that but we're all contributing and just as important as part of that team
1: so one of the ironies that I think is out there maybe irony is not exactly the right word but if there's this disagreement inside the community as you said or the person that walked up to me right hey you're doing great things but you're doing disservice to the profession so there's this disagreement you know about what we can and well I guess (laughs) maybe it's not a disagreement but but hey you can do this you can't do this as you said you go into any firm and You know, a lot of the work is being done by people that are not licensed. And then, then you go over to the other side of the table and there's this ambiguity that you talked about in the client world, right? On the public side, what does it even mean? Who's licensed? Who's not? What does it take to be licensed, et cetera? Where does all of this head from here? There's obviously a path forward. Is the path towards licensure or is it away from licensure?
2: I mean, I think that there is a value. I mean, the same way that I look at the AIA, I think has an incredible value to the broader community and our profession by having a certain standards, I think, that we all hold ourselves accountable to. right? And that's independent of whether you're licensed or not, right? You become part of the AIA, you have certain ethics standards and all this that we need to abide by. And I think that that's really important. And I think that licensure is another way that that can hold people accountable. I don't think it's doing that right now. So that's one side is what does it actually mean, a license actually mean? And I think this has been part of the conversation here in Minnesota as we question this is, can we make that better? And I think a separate thing is opening it up to more people through more different pathways, which is really just the way it used to be, right? I think a lot of this conversation is used to all be apprenticeships and then slowly for various reasons, but a lot of push to both professionalize our profession, but also to kind of limit access to people with the profession from more people. I think we've increased the educational requirements, The created educational requirements. So it used to be a four-year degree and then it turned into a five-year degree and then the push now is mostly a master's degree and that has made the profession further and further out of reach for more and more people. So going back and having alternative routes, I think a lot of states have it, right? And I think states like Vermont have great success where they have 40% of the architects there, I think, have gone through alternative pathways, which is really a apprenticeship program of some sorts. And I think they still have great buildings and great design and great health and life safety in their buildings, as we do here in Minnesota. So I think it's a little bit of both, I guess that's what I'd say, Jeff. Is I think we need to recognize all the different players in a profession and their contributions, and at the same time allow these other pathways so the people that do want to become licensed can do so.
1: Yeah. We hear often, is it Different paths to licensures, or is it even different licensures or licenses? I guess, and that's sort of what Ed is alluding to here about single family being regulated and maybe licensed differently. Would you be in favor of that, or is it simply the same kind of license but different paths to that point?
2: You know, it's a good question. I haven't thought about that specifically. I think some of the questions I have about it, or thoughts that I have about it, I think is back to like, what does a license really do? And so, it's something we looked in Minnesota is a license at once is saying you have these certain credentials, you've met these certain credentials, right? But that means something different in every state. So Wisconsin next door, you know, half 30 minute drive, you don't have to have any educational background at all and you can become an architect here. You have to have that that professional degree. On the other side of it, which I think is actually an important one is that it, it should be holding us accountable. And so if there's somebody in our profession who is doing shoddy work, or fraudulent work, or any of those things, right? We should be called out, held accountable, and lose our license. I think that's a powerful thing. And you hear about that with licenses for police officers now, or you know, certainly with doctors. That's not what our board, in Minnesota at least, has done traditionally. Almost all of their findings are around people accidentally losing their licensure, most often, or representing that they're architect when they're not. But there's none for negligence. And so I think it could be doing a better job because certainly I think there has been, at least in Minnesota, cases of negligence and fraud and things like that that's not being reflected within that. So having residential, I mean, I don't know, you know, the tests, I don't think, you know, we have people come to our office now that are licensed basically out of school. There's been that big push. It's meaningless, right? They are not able to practice on their own in any capacity and they're not better at practicing or their knowledge base than something that's coming out that's not licensed. So in that way, I don't know, having a residential license versus a commercial license, like I'm not really sure that it's representing a knowledge or expertise difference because of the way we do it and the testing that's required. I think experience is far better, and I don't know that we will ever going to test, which will really be able to capture is somebody competent to be practicing on their own, which is really what this license is supposed to be.
1: Yeah, I think, so IPAL is what you're referring to, right? At Ball State, where I teach, we have an IPAL program. I know there are others across the country that do. That seems to me to sort of be the philosophical opposite of the apprenticeship program. In my mind, the IPAL, and I'm not trying to knock one over the other or dance around any institutions, but to me, IPAL is a rush to licensure. And there are reasons, I suppose, behind that sort of accessibility Sort of reasons to that. But as you said, what's the point? What's the goal of the actual license? Because it's a student, I guess it would have to be an MRc student. They've graduated and they also are licensed now because of the IPAL program. As you said, they're not ready to, to practice anything. One of my questions is how are we rewarding them for that? Are we rewarding people that? graduate through the ipal program and are suddenly licensed as if they had 10 years of of experience there seems to be a disconnect there but i think to your point maybe on the apprenticeship side learning the craft learning the trade getting the experience as we go through this by the time you get to licensure at that point i think you are you know maybe maybe i'm like you maybe i'm the well the the tall and the white part but i'm also old so I'm an old, tall, white guy. Maybe that's just coming out here, but it seems to me that the apprenticeship approach would really leave us with much more qualified, experienced, licensed architects than would a rush to licensure, which is what I would call the, the IPAL program.
2: I think I'm generally agreeing with you. I think that, you know, in my firm, you know, we have 30 or so people and and this is building off this is I think we've realized things that Google actually has done some research on this, which came out during the DEI, kind of the start of the DEI here in AIA. And I think, you know, we've realized that what schools people are coming from has very little to do or what educational credential they have has very little to do with how well they're able to perform in the office at the start and how quickly they're able to grow and accelerate through their abilities in their career. And that was something that was surprising to me. and. You know, I had certain preconceived notions having gone to Cornell about the value of that experience as above somewhere else and certainly the credentials. And so we really have tried to identify through a process of evaluating people as they come to us and then pushing them towards growth through their careers with us is having those opportunities completely independent of, of any credentials at all based on what school they went to or what type of degree they may have or not have. And it's really based on what abilities are they showing us, what motivation are they showing us, and, and how are they able to grow into that. And that's been really successful. I think we're, we've been able to get people that maybe wouldn't have had that same experience in other firms that really are, have become firm leaders and will go beyond that as they move through. And I don't know if that somehow answered a question that now I can't recall, but I think it's... Uh, <laughs> so some of it is just how do we, as firms, right? how do we evaluate what's important to us?
0: small firm entrepreneur architects. Get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect Podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business.
3: If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan okay for the business six to 12 months out this is what we need
0: we cover it all from financial management to marketing sales productivity and beyond
2: there's two sides of it right so there's the one when you don't have any work so you're like well i'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or i'm going to go out of business or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work
0: so you charge way more
3: i'd also say lagging measures one of the best like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio.
0: Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes. It's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses.
3: I think it's challenging when we try to put one name on it and one license on it. Engineering, it's very broad, and they don't protect the word engineering. You get an engineering education, and my husband calls himself an engineer. Because he had that education, he's practicing not as a professional engineer, nor is he ever trained to be, but he is an engineer in the firm that he works for, for medical devices. And so it's interesting whether or not architects compare ourselves to doctors and lawyers with this licensure process versus our peers in the construction industry who are engineers. And we still just teach one path towards architecture. And I navigated that path because I wanted to get licensed before I had kids but that was going to be three years out of school. And there were people along that path who were like, it took me 15 years to get licensed. You're not going to be the architect I was when I got licensed. And so there's a pain point as we change these processes in that generational change. You felt it with those above you when that change happened and it closed those doors. And so it's hard to know like the value of our architectural education can be so broadly applied and as firms change their structure, perhaps we're inviting other design professions into our firms that strengthen our architectural practice in the graphics, in the other design, but we invite broader perspectives of designers into that practice that could blur those boundaries a little more than we're comfortable with in the past. So your firm, is it all architecturally trained, or do people bring other experiences?
2: We have decided through interior design, and certainly we've been open to that. Again, it's like, what are you interested in? And what do you want to learn? And what do you want to offer and see where that goes? And I think that's been successful. I mean, I think 30 people is a small firm, right? Small business, a small community. And so you want to find people that are the right fit and also have a diversity of ideas and contributions. And I think that's been that's been a goal that we've been able to achieve by and large. One thing I just, and this may lead into some other conversations we have here, but. the healthcare profession there's a lot of different licenses right maybe too many i don't think that part is like transportable into architecture necessarily but i do like that you know oftentimes because you go into the emergency department and go in the hospital and there's all these different types of licensed professionals that are going to take care of you but they just generally call them providers now and i'm not proposing that term but i think it's a nice way that there's they're way ahead of us i think in recognizing all the different people that Contribute and care for somebody. So whether it's a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant or a paramedic or whatever it is, it's your provider. And that's not discounting anybody's role in it.
3: And from the experience of being in a hospital, they all wear scrubs, they're all there to help, and they know among themselves who does which tasks. And they hold themselves accountable to fulfilling what they are qualified for. Whereas the person who's in need of care you don't necessarily see this. And so it's that client perspective versus within the profession and how we are trying to define and clarify within the profession how we define licensure.
2: Yeah, I think it's just back to another point I often make, I think is why is licensure come about the way it is? And I think you can look at like New York and New Jersey and, you know, New York is one of the harder states to practice in. I think you actually can without a license practice there with 10 years or something of apprenticeship, but you have to have a physical office there, right? And this is, born about from them not wanting the jersey architects coming in and practicing in the city and and so it's been conscious in terms of the walls we put up and who we're trying to keep in and who we're trying to keep out and how that's evolved it's not been accidental that's what i'd say Mm
1: -hmm. i think that's part of what fascinates me about the maybe the philosophical side of this is you know what is the purpose of the license sure that's part of it but i think also as we look into the future of the profession how are we going to serve, how's the profession going to serve clients, society, a you know, rapidly changing society as we go forward into 2024 and beyond, with different needs, you know, different technologies, which is something I'm really paying attention to now. What is it even going to mean to serve clients? And I guess back to your both of your analogies of the healthcare, right? You go to the hospital and you get the scrubs and This one has a tag that says RN, and this one has, there are little designations that you might notice or you may not notice as a patient. And I think, you know, back to this idea that the public is confused by licensure, I'll take it a step forward or a step further, because I like to stir the pot. Amazing and disappointing that the public still doesn't understand what our licenses mean. I would ask everybody to take a step back for a second and ask why the public cares. Why does Joe Public, Jack Public, Jill Public, whoever, why do they care? Do I care that this person designing my home is licensed or not? Like you said, do I get a good feel from them? Do I I look at their body of work, et cetera? Do I care if they're licensed? I don't know. Should I? Should I care if they are? Or is this a construct that we've created that really has lost all meaning?
2: The latter is what I would argue, right? Like I I think licensure could mean something, and right now it doesn't. So it means you've been successful in jumping through certain hoops to get it. But I don't think it's meaningful outside of that. Now, I do think though, at the same time, and this has come up in conversations in Minnesota that and I've tried to be really thoughtful about this as I mentor people, is that back to, you know, being tall white men, Jeff, right? That I think it's we're able to be successful without certain credentials that I know a lot of women, female architects in Minnesota I've talked to that are my age or a little bit older, that this has been something that, as they tried to break into this male-dominated profession, they really needed in order to be successful and have a seat at the table at all. And certainly, I think that's definitely probably still true and even more true to, you know, I recently had mentored a young African-American woman who now has made it through the other side and is licensed. But I really realized that the advice I was giving her, this was maybe 10 years ago, really wasn't applicable to her because. I don't think she could have gotten that seat at that table without the AIA behind her name and demand the respect that she probably should have already had Right without that, but really needed. It's more complex you know. the further we get into these things right there.
3: It is. The client experience that Peterson Keller offers is incredible. And the way that you serve your clients is just beyond what is normally expected in a firm. And the results are beautiful. And so it's hard to see that disconnect between, well, there's these certain qualifications of licensure, but to get licensed, it's not the same qualifications of serving your clients to the best of your abilities. And it's hard to justify that disconnect or even create a language or describe it in the profession, let alone beyond. Now, do you mind if I switch gears a little? (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious because you've talked about Before we were on live, uh, the qualities that are taught in an architectural education don't just lead to practicing in a firm. They can lead to all sorts of things that build the community. And you mentioned some of your own classmates and what they've been able to do and had extreme success in these alternative routes. Would you have anything to share about that? Like, maybe you don't need a license to be successful.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think architecture school, so all this conversation is, I think my education that I did receive was excellent, right? I think that design school, architecture school, is the only time where we're allowed the space and the privilege to learn how to be great designers. And so that's like, I definitely mentor people towards those type of schools because I think we learn all these other technical parts. We're going to learn that. But to be creative, to have the space to learn how to be creative is only really happens for most of us. In, in architecture school or design school. So I think that it teaches us to be problem solvers, creative problem solvers. And I think that type of mindset of being able to identify, take a complex situation, identify underlying problems, develop criteria for for meeting those problems and leverage creative solutions that are not just functional but beautiful to meet it. I think that's what architecture school does. and that is kind of independent of being able to design a building or construct a building or any of those things. So you can take that mindset and that way of thinking and do just about anything with it. And that's not to oversell, you know, us coming out of school, but I think it gives us the tools to grow in many different professions, whether that's, you know, design related or not, right? You're an adjacent career and even, you know, I'm now we'll probably talk about this briefly, but you know, I'm also a paramedic now and very different job but there's also some similarities in the way I approach problems you know i will come to a patient that's on 300 pound man that can't walk with a broken leg on the third floor of an old you know 120 year old house here in minneapolis and we got to get him out and that's like a you know fitting something that's this big into something that's this big and they're sweaty and all this. There's a physicality there that's creative. So you got to figure that out. And then at the same time, just like we deal with our clients, you're dealing with this client, right? Except it's your patient. And you have to know how to talk to that person and, and relate to that person and think constructively and consistently and under pressure. And so there's a lot of things that I kind of had taken from my work in the design world, architecture world, and used there. So we can take our lives in many different directions. And that's something that probably, Katie, you're going to want to ask about this, but that's something that has become, you know, I practicing for 20 years and I started kind of running out of steam for a lot of different reasons. My partner who I started the firm with got really sick and ended up dying of early onset dementia. My mom died around the same time and that really caused me to kind of question some of the things I'm doing and it was really hard to be creative. And I think most of us would agree that, you know, being creative requires both passion and joy and when you're in mourning. I mean, there's that sadness there. I think it's hard to find that. You can kind of get things done, right? You can connect the dots, but really thinking creatively, holistically is really a challenge. It requires a kind of spiritual, mental energy that you've just lost. At that same time, we built a practice that more and more, our projects are on the very high end of a single-family residential. So doing homes that are million, $20 million, $50 million, $100 million. And that is a particular privilege, but also a particular challenge for us as individuals of what are we doing and what are we giving back to the world and the challenges of dealing with uh, clients in that echelon is something that those two things were really conflicting for me. So I had to think creatively and necessity is the mother of invention. And so I had this necessity of something had to change, something had to give. And I needed to find a different way to get back and moving in to become a paramedic and take the sabbatical to be paramedic was kind of my answer to that necessity.
1: That's an amazing chapter or chapters, I guess, of your story. But I think it's an illustration of how many of us are stuck in this idea. You know, this is it, right? This is the path. This is the way. And that's just fiction. It's just fiction. It may be reality for a while for many of us, but at some point. You know, there are all kinds of branches and tangents and obstacles that happen. And, you know, whether it's young people that are in school figuring out how to pay for school or how to get into school or make it to the profession or somewhere, you know, I think mid-journey somewhere, not to talk about AI, but yeah, (laughs) I think we all need to take a step back and open our Eyes in our hearts to the fact that whatever path that we've been on is our path, right? It doesn't mean that it's Gabriel's path or Katie's path or anybody else's path. And ultimately, what are we bringing to it? How are we going to serve people through this?
2: Again, we're not just a profession, we're a creative profession. And I think that's something that's unique. And so, you know, more or less from 20 until 70, you know, that's 50 years you know, counting some school in there that were in this world. And that's a very long time. And we talk about needing passion and joy to be creative. I think that it's unrealistic to think that that's just unsustained going to go on for 50 years through all these different changes in our lives and challenges in our lives and changes in the world. And so I think, you know, looking at education right the the universities have had sabbaticals built in for a long time because that's this way to kind of hey step outside of what you're doing get your face out of your book or your research and think about things in a different way or from a different place and so there's a system that's been built into that which is i think i would argue you know education is a creative profession right you have to be thinking it's not just connecting the dots again it's about something more than that and so i begin to realize that i think that there's really a need in our profession as well. Because especially as you think about those 50 years, usually your last 30 years are either your own firm or you're in leadership at somebody else's firm. And at that point, we're not moving jobs. And it becomes much more difficult. And i talking with, as I was talking with people in education and peers at the university and other firms, big and small, we all had this kind of feeling like, hey, you know, there was one of the design heads at HGA, one of the really big firms here. And we talked and like, hey, John, like, I want to come for a summer and design with you and these big, huge, amazing, you know, institutional projects. He's like, no, I want to come to your firm and like work in this house. And I think thinking creatively, we started talking about, you know, could we do some type of design exchange, right? Could we do this exchange student exchange of professional between some of these firms? And I think that's something we haven't done, but we still have talked about doing because we both got excited in a way that was different than just working on another project for me. Like, hey, that got me. Motivating, like drinking some shots of espresso that I wanted to talk about and think about it and do it. So I think that's one model that we could do. But the other one is kind of the more traditional and the route I've kind of taken is saying, hey, you know, every so many years, do we start creating a space? And that space is conceptual, first and foremost, and financial is maybe the second question, but at least a conceptual space that, like, hey, this is something that is recognized. And if it's something that's recognized and something that's routine, when somebody does it, it's not just like, oh, my gosh, what are they doing? They're leaving the profession. They're going to go away for a year. They're never going to come back or whatever it might be. It's an anomaly, and we get uncomfortable, at least in the Midwest, with anomalies. And so I think if it's something that we think about as, hey, we should all do this, you should do it, I should do it, then we start supporting each other in those endeavors. And then the financial part, I think, starts working out so you don't just need to be a firm owner to be able to take advantage of some of these opportunities.
3: You talked about a sabbatical where it's that change of perspective. By switching it all up, you still are maybe practicing design, but just that change of scenery, that change of environment can kind of refresh and remind you what it's like to learn things and look at things in a fresh light. Are there other kinds of sabbaticals?
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, I think that that's, you know, so there's a great Harvard, actually their business school has done a lot of really interesting research on sabbaticals in general. And so, They defined, well, one, they've done some research that shows that these sabbaticals in various formats, right? There are some that are shorter and some that are longer have been really beneficial for individuals, but also the firms they work for and not architecture specifically, but just wherever they may be in the profession. And so that data is backing up some of this intuition that some of us have out there. They talked about three different types of sabbaticals, which I talked about in my talk. And one is like a working holiday. And this is, you know, you, want to write you want to do some other work right you have some passion project that you want to work on so you want to write a book or build your own house or your own cabin or something like that so you say hey i'm going to take this time off i'm going to go do this other thing it's not a vacation i don't think any of these are really vacations but this pursuit that you want to go and do that specific thing and i think that can be pretty successful and that's pretty targeted and we've had people within our office actually do it just not full sabbaticals but you know, Ashley in my office. She's been building by hand her own cabin up north, and so has been taking Fridays off for quite some time, so she can go and do that over a longer weekend, which is a form of sabbatical. I think the other uh, free dives is another one they term, and and that's the kind of eat, pray, love model. You are going to go out and you have wanderlust, and I'm going to go to Fiji and discover myself and discover, you know, what the world is about, and come back with that new perspective. And I think that's pretty, I mean, that's compelling to me. I haven't done that, but that's like, sounds great, right? Where would you go? And they found that people that do that, they typically return to their, well, the first category, I'm sorry, I should have said, the working holidays, those people come right back into the same positions, right? New perspective, they're renewed, but they're typically coming back into the same spot. The free dives, the wanderlust, people usually come back, they found, but come back maybe in a different position within that firm maybe doing things differently, like it's changed their life, their day-to-day life a little bit more afterwards. And the last one they call the class. And this is people that, and this really is what I have ended up doing, that really are doing the most dramatic transformations. And this is oftentimes they found people that are actually really came from a position of burnout, which is definitely where I was. And they're really needing to recover from that, to find renewed joy within themselves, but really go out and kind of test drive a new way of life or new professions or something that's really outside of what they've done before. And so for me, that was becoming a paramedic in the midst of COVID and George Floyd and all of these outside influences. And those people they found are least likely to return to their former profession or their former job, at least. And if they do, it's really from a different way. So I don't think that those aren't rules, right? You can do any one of those things, but I think it really illustrates that there's such a diversity of ways of doing it. And I think that's really what I've been trying to talk about recently is what it means for me and versus what it means for you, Jeff, or you, Katie. It's going to be driven by your own stressors, your own opportunities, your own passions. And what do you need? And that might be different at year 10 versus year 20 versus year 30 versus
1: year 40 in terms of how you do it.
3: And I do think this relates back to that licensure conversation because it's about what are the real goals of the profession? how do we want people to practice architecture? And healthcare, I think, is starting to talk about this, about giving back to doctors so that their wellness in their practice is to a level that supports them as individuals so that they can practice at their optimal capacity. And within architecture, this talk about licensure, there's going to be other pinch points. You need continuing education, this constant time to maintain that license and to have the freedom of not maintaining a license. Like you have more opportunities open to be able to think about this a little differently. I think that's been really valuable to hear about. So thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what's next? What's the push? And you're obviously focused on Minnesota, right? That's your context, but it ties to a larger context. So what do you think is next in terms of the, I guess, maybe starting with the licensure piece of it? What's the next step in the conversations there?
2: Yeah, and this started, Katie. You can correct me if you remember differently, but I think this. Yeah, you know, I felt like there was a few of us in Minnesota, let's say five years ago, that talked about licensure, and it really was. You know, I thought this would be something that we might be able to impact change over the next, you know, twenty years or something. And then it started changing kind of very rapidly. I think with a greater understanding of why or is our profession not diverse, and then you know, what are those levers we can actually impact, and then. One of the East Coast uh, AAA chapters proposed for the national convention a uh, proposal that AAA national support a change within the states to support alternative pathways. And that prompted a lot of discussion and backlash. And it was withdrawn from the convention this last year, but it allowed an opportunity for, I hope, many other states, but certainly here in Minnesota, it kickstarted that conversation, which really actually then gained momentum and Now we're in the process of changing the recommendations from AIA. Now that's just a step. You know, ultimately this is these are all every state has a board that is appointed by governors, the governor typically and becomes something political outside of architects. But I think that there is going to be a change here in Minnesota, but it was also a change rolling nationally for the other half of the states that don't have alternative pathways. So I think that ball is headed downhill and I'm pretty optimistic that those changes are gonna happen and quite surprised by how quickly that has changed so i think that's what's next with licensure i think the more important thing for us as a profession is to use that and see that as an opportunity to say how can we make this better as opposed to just let more people in that's important but how can we make this better so it's actually something that's more useful for us and for the public
3: I love that. Some of my best mentors have been unlicensed or unable to be licensed in this state. And that's a tension point because it's just getting the name doesn't make me any different the next day. And I did see the slideshow this morning at our member congress showing the alternative paths that AIA Minnesota is going to be presenting to the state board. And it's exciting to see that. They don't often make change in five years. And so it's an attest to your story and to the general need that is seen in this conversation
1: yeah i agree i mean i think if we want to get to the point where licensure matters to the public there has to be something behind it right and i think as gabriel as you were just saying that i was thinking about the construction industry you know now there i hate to say it this way but now there's marketing behind the idea that hey it's okay for your kid to go into construction instead of go to college or something like that because they're, you know we need framers and we need pipe fitters and, and so on and so forth. I think we've got to get to the point where there's a genuine, authentic conversation about the true value of an architect and how an architect, I guess with a big A and a license, how that person becomes that thing. Right Transforms into that license thing, and what the actual value to that is beyond a hey, it's a piece of paper that you're required. It's a stamp that you're required to have, you know when you want to build your deck or you know whatever the situation is in your particular state. So I love this conversation. I love the fact that this ball is rolling downhill. I think it's much needed. Because I think we've, in my opinion, we've sort of lost the purpose behind the idea. And it doesn't surprise me, right? Anytime we try to protect a term for the sake of protecting a term, sorry if that sort of devalues the argument. But if that's all we care about is the term, then there's a huge underlying problem, I believe. And, you know, you're talking about addressing that structural problem. And I really appreciate that. I appreciate the effort.
2: Thanks. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of great, I think, national partners and local partners now, just other people, right, that are kind of carrying this weight and carrying this ball, and it's great to see that work pay off. And what's next, I think, on the sabbaticals, too, is I think that this is just part of a conversation. Every time I talk about it, people get super excited about it, and so I want to keep on talking about it because it's a little bit less angsty for me than a licensure, right. and, and I think there's a lot of different ways that it can roll out, but I think it would be really useful for everybody and so i think locally it's something that we're talking about more and i think this exchange this initial idea of just exchanging you know, having a professor come in and work on a project with me and me working on a project with her and somebody from hga coming in and vice versa like i, I think that's really there's a lot of we could reproduce that quite easily with the right motivation i think passionately as well
3: and really grow the profession it's just that bigger growth that we can manage yeah
1: I'm excited to see where it goes. I think these are two very, very worthy conversations. So, you know, we'll see in five years time, you thought it was gonna be 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see where it is in just, in just a few years. Sounds like there's a lot of momentum behind this. So thank you for sharing your story as well. I think I know that there's a lot of feeling there and it was hard, has been hard, maybe hopefully easier, as you said, but I appreciate you giving us that background and setting that context for us. And again, as a reminder, my story is my story and it's nobody else's story. There's a lot out there, a lot of people out there that are going through things that we don't have any idea about, or maybe we have some idea about, but we need to develop some empathy for. So I think these kinds of conversations really really help us to get there. We've gotten to the top of the hour, which means we need to wrap this up. And I think this also means that we wrap up this season of Context and Clarity, doesn't it? it does. So we've come to the end of the fall season. We're going to take a little bit of a break. To Gabriel, thank you. To Katie, thank you. All of our other guests, previous guests in this season of Context and Clarity Live, thank you for all of this. I believe this is still a valuable conversation, you know, this hour that we're able to take out with special guests to to dig into the things that matter most to architects, the profession and to the way that you practice it, the way you get there, et cetera. So thank you to everybody that's been involved in this season and, and context and clarity in a broader sense. I appreciate it. We've been doing this for a long time now. I don't even know. how <laughs> long, Honestly, well over, we're coming up on four years, I guess, on the daily version of this, but over two years, I think, here on these conversations. So thanks to everybody. Thanks to everybody that's behind the scenes, Don and Sarah and Mark and everybody else for making this a reality. And we're going to take a little bit of a sabbatical of sorts and we'll see you back in January. So thanks, everybody. Appreciate you. Have great holidays, whatever it is that you celebrate. And we'll see you next year.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff and Katie. Thank you so much. It's a privilege. Thank you,
1: Gabe. Absolutely. Really appreciate you being here. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use in your practice or even in your daily life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, I invite you to go over to the Entree Architect Network. It's a place where entrepreneur architects just like you gather to have conversations on these topics and support each other in their practices and in their lives. You can find the Entree Architect Network at network.entreearchitect.com. And if you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context & Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context & Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context & Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Your likes, your ratings and your shares help us and help other entrepreneur architects like you to gather together and you can help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment and it's the home of context and clarity with Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice.